welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. <clears throat> All right, friends, if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And before I do that, I wanted to just read a portion of this. Uh, was a note that I got from Sue, who is the principal at Garlow Elementary. Uh, she mentioned, December, I was un- unable to attend your big event. That was our Christmas uh, show that we did for Ben's kind of CD release thing. Uh, included an artist in an auction of the art. I heard it was a s- spectacular event, highly successful. I'm happy to report that the funds forwarded to Garlow supported students through a scholarship fund to attend our three-day, two-night experience at Eagle Bluff. The money made several students' dreams come true. Um, so I get these often, uh, people saying, thank you for your community, thank you for your investment, uh, and so I want to pass it on to you because uh, you all make this happen. So uh, that's good stuff, really good stuff. That's what happens when the kingdom shows up and the kingdom is made known and manifest. Um, one other thing I want to mention before we jump in is John Mark uh, is having a CD release party. Uh, this coming Saturday night at the Cedar Cultural Center. So while I'm being ordained, yes, friends, this is happening, uh, John Mark is going to be rocking the house down at uh, the Cedar. So if you're interested in that, it's going to be a great show. I think Ben, uh, ben will be playing with them uh, a little bit as well. So that's at 8 o'clock, thecedar.org. Uh, we want to support those who are involved in art in our community, so please do that. That would be awesome. Um, okay, so we're going to jump in here. I used to be a youth pastor in another life. One of the most, uh, one of the best assets for every youth pastor is to learn how to play the guitar, as we all know, right? And so I was a senior in high school, and I was uh, a junior high leader in our youth group, and so I, I began to learn how to play the guitar. I learned such classic favorites as Pharaoh, Pharaoh, Oh Baby, Let My People Go, which you can play and never move your fingers, the finger, and you just slide it up the frets. E, A, and B. That's it, friends. E, A, and B. Anyone can do it. Uh, blind man stood by the road and he cried. Yes, yes. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. But maybe the most influential uh, hit that I learned, I think we've actually got a clip of it. Uh, this is performed by none other than Petra. Take a listen. Heavenly Flashbacks, right? Yes. But wait for the hook. Wait for the chorus. Yes. Oh, wow. You're welcome for that. Uh, maybe you've heard this song before, maybe you've been blessed and you missed it. But this phrase, the battle belongs to the Lord, real popular in the 80s and 90s among Christians, especially those who read a lot of Frank Peretti. And um, this may surprise you, but I'm going to argue the opposite this morning. I know that's totally not in my MO to do something like that, so I apologize if I'm shaking uh, the, the boat here a little. Um, so I'm going to argue the opposite. The, the sermon that I've uh, prepared this morning, uh, the title is The Battle Belongs to You, actually. Except it doesn't have actually on the end of it. It's just The Battle Belongs to You. Uh, now, before I do that, of course, I, I must say that the song, um, yeah, okay, 
The battle belongs to the Lord. By the way, John Michael Talbot is the author. Is the author John Michael Talbot? I thought it was Keith Green or Rich Mullins, but no, John Michael. Um, so, but before I argue the opposite is true, of course, on a grand level, what the song is saying is true. Okay, there is a battle of sorts. There is something that has been done for us in Christ that we cannot do on our own. We cannot defeat sin and death and evil in the world on our own. It's clear history tells this story and that God has and can and has done that in Christ. And so, yes, this is true. The battle belongs to the Lord on the one hand. But as we'll see in a moment here, I think that Paul would argue that there's a pretty significant emphasis on your part in all of this and our part in all of this. And so I want to twist it just a little bit. Uh, stand with me if you can and if you will. I'm gonna, we're going to read 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. Paul says this, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. BT dubs. There's a lot of trash talking going on in this passage. So if you have ears to hear, remember what Jesus always says, if you have ears to hear, you will find Paul, he's got a little, he's a little chippy, he's got a little lip on him here. So, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you went away. I beg that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect towards some people uh, who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every, every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Okay. You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as you do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord has gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. That's code word for you're a bad preacher. We're bored to tears and we fall asleep every time you open your mouth. Such people, Paul says, such people should realize that when that we are in our letters, uh, I'm sorry, such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. Pray with me, if you will. God, as we open our hearts and our minds and our lives to this story, to this scripture, I ask that by your spirit you would be present to us, that you would speak what we need to hear as your church and as individuals, that we might, like Jesus said, have eyes to see you and ears to hear you. I pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> so Paul's got a little chip on his shoulder. He's getting a little lippy here. Um, have you ever heard this one? Do not make me pull this car over. You've heard this before? Yes. Some of you maybe have been children when your parents said to you, son, do not make me pull this car over. Or maybe you've been in the driver's seat as mom or dad and you've said to your child, do not make me pull this car over. And then you pull the car over because the, 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 whatever has happening previously has continued to happen. And so you pull the car over and you go to reach behind you to break the ankles of the child who's kicking your seat incessantly only to find that the lap, you know, shoulder strap that has you grabs you just out of reach of said child. And now said child thinks this is hilariously funny because you are trying to get them and you can't get them. And they think this is great. You've been there before? Yes, hypothetically speaking, this is metaphor. I've never been that, that guy before, but 
you know, you say, don't make me pull this car over, or you better pray to the God of skinny punks that the wind doesn't pick up, or I'm going to come over there and, you know, where Tommy Boy takes it from there, right? Any of you seen Tommy Boy? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Golly. Second hour, you guys are tough. You're a tough crowd sometimes. We've talked about this, though, haven't we? Yeah, okay. So Paul in this section, he's doing more of the same, right? We've been talking about this the last couple of weeks, that he's commending himself to the Corinthians, saying, I am an apostle. I've been sent by God. The spirit of God, the spirit of resurrection is in in me, and this is what we're bearing witness to. And here at the beginning of this passage, and then again at the end, we see Paul, I think, sort of running thin on patience, like the proverbial father in the wood-paneled station wagon going to Wally World, you know, like (laughs) punching the moose in the face. Yeah, this is about, that's about, that's what's about to happen here. Uh, And the critics of Paul, they say essentially, he's all bark and no bite, right? I was talking to my wife about this last night, and she's like, yeah, it's like Paul's all bite, all, all bite and no bark. And like, I think I know where you're going, but it might be the other way around, right? He's all bark and no bite. He's sort of, he's bold in his letters, but then when he shows up, it's kind of like, that sort of deal. Well, Paul, in this passage, he's flexing his muscles a little bit, and he's letting them know, like, don't make me show up as bold as I am in my letters, because I will open up a can when I get there if you make me, right? This is kind of, this is the trash talking that's happening here. And so he says, essentially, because one, his authority comes from Christ, and two, because this is what he's been doing his whole ministry. Some may think that Paul, you know, uh, when we read the Bible, oftentimes it's sort of two-dimensional, it's flat, right? It's flatlands. Uh, there, there's no dynamics, there's no up-down, there's, but this is real. These are real people, and Paul was a real guy who was doing this kind of thing, battling against these ideas and these sort of um, things that set themselves up against the knowledge of God is what is how he says it. <clears throat> and while I think Paul would agree, in heavenly armor we enter the land, the battle belongs to the Lord, there's a sense in which Paul is engaged in this fight as well. And I think we have to remember where Paul is. We have to situate Paul in his context. He's in the ancient Near East, which is code word for the area around the Mediterranean Sea, around the zero, right? Ancient. We're talking a long time ago. And this includes uh, uh, certainly Rome and Italy and Greece and all that that brings with it. It includes Turkey and Syria and Palestine and Babylon and Egypt And friends, there is no shortage of crazy things that are happening there. Paul, if you remember in the book of Acts, he enters uh, the Areopagus, one of the most famous passages in Acts, and he begins to debate the prophets and the poets of their day. And all of the ideologies that are sort of surrounding and sort of, you know, milling about in culture, Paul addresses them. And on the one hand is Epicureanism, and on the other is Stoicism. Both are classic sort of ancient Near Eastern Greek uh, ideas, and Paul navigates through that and then presents to them the resurrected Jesus, and he does so in very deft fashion, if you really know what's going on there. So all through his teachings, he's talking about this sort of battle that he has against the things that are set up that are basically in opposition to that which Jesus stands for and the kingdom of God is about. You find in Romans, he talks about weapons. You talk in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, the classic armor of God passage, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, sword of the spirit, the readiness of the gospel on our feet, right? This armor, and he talks about these things. And then in this passage, we get to what exactly are we fighting against or what are we using these things for? He's not reading from a textbook again. Remember where he is, right? This whole area around the Mediterranean is just rife 
with all kinds of crazy ideas and pagan ideas, rituals and fertility cults and all that goes with that. Use your imagination, but not for too long. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just, it's nuts. Like, it's all there, okay? And this is where Paul finds himself as an ambassador of monotheism and Jesus. And so he critiques, he battles against the ideas and philosophies and power structures and systems of his day. One example of that is Jesus is Lord. I've talked about this before. Rome, the most powerful empire that's ever been on the face of the planet, when they would conquer a city, they would come in and they would say that, uh, that, that the, the gospel, the good news, the evangelion of Rome is here. And that good news is that you are now protected. If you bow a knee to Caesar, Rome will give you peace. Pax Romana, they called it. They will give you prosperity. They will care for you. They will tuck you in at, bed, at, at night. They will do all these things for you so long as you bow a knee to Caesar, which is to say Caesar is Lord. Lord is a technical term that, that's used in religious settings to say authority, the king over all. And so Paul comes in and he says, oh, here's a, here's a system and a power structure that sets itself up against the kingdom of God. And he says, no, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. He does it again in Colossians. He uses this phrase, the fullness of divinity. Not a phrase he pulls out of a hat. Rather, something that is, it's, it, it's got like cultural currency. People know this phrase because it's used to talk about the, the Caesars, the imperial cult, they called it. All the Caesars that were sort of worshipped as gods. He says, no, the fullness of divinity is found in Christ, in Jesus. So this is what Paul is doing. He's setting setting himself against or battling against these things. Now, why would I call, why would I entitle this message the battle belongs to you? And how exactly is Paul going about this? Um, how many of you are familiar with the, the, the game Duck, Duck? Gray Duck. Gray Duck, thank you very much. And I've, I heard a goose. I heard a goose over here. All in favor of Duck, Duck, Gray Duck, please raise your hands. Keep them high. Thank you. All in favor of Duck, Duck, Goose, please raise your hands. Keep them high. Those of you who have your hands, what's it? Yes, how many of you are not from Minnesota? Yeah, you're in Minnesota now, so play by the stinking rules. It's duck, duck, gray duck, people, right? It's duck, duck, gray duck. There's no questions about this. I mean, this is ironclad. It's in the books. Similarly, I've recently found out that there is another version of Capture the Flag. How many of you played Capture the Flag at camp as a kid? Yeah, I just sent my 10-year-old to camp last week. Like, I'm that old now. I'm like sending my child to a week-long summer camp is bizarro drop her off you know like hey see you later girl sweetheart and there she goes just like that's what you do you like they just go <laughs> they never look back never called <laughs> miss you dad no just like peace out yo she had a great time she played capture the flag in the rain i was a camp counselor in, in college we actually played capture the cow tongue yes yes it was sick, disgusting. There was a butcher in the town that the camp was at in the mountains, and we got two gigantic, have you ever seen a cow tongue? I mean, these things are like the size of your forearms. They are huge mungus. So we played capture the cow tongue against all of the FDA uh, rules and regulations. We also played capture the trout one time. I was a fly fisherman, and we caught a bunch of trout, and so we like stuck these things on a stake, like Lord of the Flies style. Yeah, it's not, not good, not good. You know, if, I'm, I'm so glad that none of the parents found me out as a youth pastor. You know, <laughs> We did these kinds of things. So anyhow, 
we played capture the flag. And if, you, if you've never played, here's how it works. There's two teams, you know, A and B. There's a middle line. And as, as team A, you have a flag or a cow tongue or a trout. And team B also has one. And you hide it. And then the other team has to find it in, you know, in, behind enemy lines without getting caught by tagging them. Now, an American capture the flag. When somebody gets captured, they go to what? Jail, right? Exactly. Jail. Prison. And they're imprisoned there for a bit. And if one of your teammates can infiltrate the enemy ranks and get to the jail without getting caught, of course, it's a jailbreak. You've got it. You've done it. Prison break, also a great TV show. But across the pond in Europe, evidently, they don't play it that way. They actually play it this way, where when you get captured, you don't necessarily get put in prison per se, but you're made to take the armband of the other team and play for the other team. So you're captured... You're taken captive and made to play for the other team. And this is the metaphor that I think Paul is getting at when he says, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. So let's unpack that just a little bit. In verses 3, 4, and 5, Paul says, Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we demolish arguments that set every, and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. And, and when he says they set themselves up against the knowledge of God, this is anything, a thought, a power structure, an idea, a philosophy, a, a, an ideology that stands in opposition to the way in which God intends the world to be. Jesus calls it the kingdom of God. The Torah calls it the Garden of Delight, the Garden of Eden. Okay, the hopes and dreams of God for the world, wholeness, flourishing, and delight. Anything that stands in opposition to that, whether it's in my mind or in the world or in a community, this is what Paul's talking about. Now, this is review and kind of elementary at times, but I think it's worth repeating. Paul says, though we live in this world, we do not fight like the world. What does it mean that God is fighting for you? What picture do you have in your mind? Last week we sang a song that said, um, our God is fighting for us always. And I want to stop just for a moment and ask, I think, a very important question. What does it mean that God is fighting for us? What does it look like? Does God come with the same power that the world comes with, with guns and swords and bombs and fleets of carriers? Or is it something else? to say that God is fighting for us. Now, some might say, well, you can look back to the Old Testament, you find the Joshua conquest narratives and God doing all these sort of, sort of the warrior God we see in the Old Testament. And I would take a very long time and a very deep theological discourse to invite you to look at that very differently. And I think we find a a very different picture of God that doesn't necessarily represent God's self as a warrior God in those contexts. That's a whole nother sermon on another day. What I would say is in Hebrews, we hear that Jesus is the exact representation of God. When we see Jesus, we see God. And so when we ask the question, what does it mean that God is fighting for us? What we find is that it's important to remember that when God fights for us, it doesn't look like bombs and guns and power and swords, but rather it looks like a crucified Messiah hanging on the cross for his enemies. It looks like self-sacrificial, other-oriented kind of love for those who hate you. When God says, I'm fighting for you, 
I want to submit that it's not, and this is what Paul says, though we live in this world, we don't fight like this world because the world fights with bombs and guns and gunpowder and swords. But the kingdom is something other and Jesus's way is something other than that. And what we see in Jesus is not guns and power and bombs, but rather self-sacrificial, other-oriented kind of love for the enemy. This is what we see. Paul says, and what we fight with is also not of this world. So those who are a part of the people of God do not come with triumphal imperialism or power or bombs or guns or picket signs. Rather, what we come with is something other than that. And this is what Paul's getting at in all these passages. He's saying your power, what gives you the power or that, that which empowers you to be the people of God in the world, battling these ideas and philosophies and power structures is not the power of the world, but rather the power of the resurrected Jesus that's now live and loose in the world in you. Come on now. This is the power of the kingdom of God. This is the power of God's people. It's the spirit of God in us, and it doesn't look like the world's power. It's foolishness to the, to the world. It's foolishness that through death and sacrifice, someone could win a battle. But this is exactly what the kingdom says. This is exactly what Jesus teaches. And what does Paul say? What do we do? We take these systems, these ideas, these powers, these thoughts captive and make them submit to the way of Jesus. And so when it's in me, I make it submit to whatever, whatever habit, pattern, desire, thought I have, I make it submit to the way of Jesus in the world. Whenever we as a community find it in us, we make it submit to the way of Jesus in the world. Whenever we find it in the world, Paul says we take it captive. Now, when he says we take every thought captive, I think it's broader than what we tend to think. If you're anything like me, I grew up in the church, evangelicalism, conservative evangelicalism, and taking every thought captive to me in junior high and high school was accountability with Dan Mosier, and it had to do with lust and not thinking about girls in some way that I shouldn't. Guys in the room, anybody with me on that one? Yeah, okay. Women, I'm not really sure what that looks like for you, but I'm sure that there's some kind of equivalent. I once heard a woman say that comparison is to a woman is, is what lust is to a man. I don't know if that's true or not, but maybe. I'll submit that for your consideration. Be that as it may, when we talked about taking every thought captive, it was all about like taking these passions and desires in me to Jesus, kicking and screaming where Jesus would squash them and kill them and make them go away which is a whole nother sermon about how we view sexuality. But again, I'm not prepared for that one, and I really ought to be, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Some of you are like, come on, do it, just go for it. I will not take that bait. I will not take that bait. I think it's bigger than that. I don't think it's less than my own personal thoughts and what I'm, what's happening in between my ears. I think it's that, yes, Scripture says that we should think about things that are lovely and noble and honoring. But I think it's more than that. And I think that's what Paul's getting at when he says, these, he's talking about we take, we, we, take, uh, we take aim at anything that sets itself up against the kingdom of God. Whether that's in me or in our community or in the world. And so I think that it's more than that. I think it's more than just the thoughts in your head. It's capturing them and submitting them to the kingdom's cause. And yes, it might happen in my head, but it also happens in our community and in our world. And this is not easy. Oftentimes the church has tried to do this and arguably done a very poor job of it and said and done things that were dumb and regrettable. 
But this is why oftentimes Paul was hated by the people of his city or the cities that he would go to. He would stand there and say, listen, gang, Gnosticism, this idea that you're after a spiritual experience in your head and that everything in the world that's of the body or that's of physical nature, it doesn't even matter. So you can either indulge in it because it doesn't matter or don't touch it at all because you want to stay clean from it. Like that's not actually the way that the world works. And that's not what God has revealed to us in the scriptures. So he would stand there and say, this philosophy, this idea that you're after some mystical Gnostic experience at the detriment of that which is physical and real, it's not true. And it stands against the way that the Hebrew scriptures talk about God and humans and spirit. That God is in, interested in all, in body, in flesh, and blood. This is why God shows up in flesh and blood. This is why Jesus is resurrected. Why do we think our experience post-death will be any different than Jesus's? I'll fly away someday. Bad theology, actually. Resurrection in a body. That's, what we're, that's, what, that's, what, that's the hope of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 is a whole chapter saying it. So Paul stands there and he says, no, this is not true. What's true is an integrated whole human that is both body and spirit, and God is interested in redeeming all of it. Panentheism, right? This idea that God is, God is all and in all. And so the trees out there were to be worshipped. You, you're a God, I'm a God. Not true. Scriptures say something other than that. While there is an imageness of God in me and in you, and there is the energy of God in creation as we, as we speak, sit here right now, there is a qualitative difference between God and me. And thank you. Amen to that, right? There is a qualitative difference between God and you. Amen. And there is a, there is a healthy separation that ought to be kept, minded, to not do that is called panentheism, and then God is all and in all, and you're God, and I'm God, and what we're after is what's inside. And uh, not quite. I think our culture and, and the church has done a poor job on this one, but I think that there's something to be said about sexuality in our culture and how we view it. Sex is not just sex with anybody and everybody anytime you want it. It's something far different than that. And while our culture has a particular view of this, I think the scriptures speak differently about it. Where in covenantal lifelong relationships, one gives on themselves to another just as God covenants God's self to us and gives God's self to us. This is a mirror image of this intimacy. And in that context, and not before, is it healthy and right and beautiful and good? That's not necessarily popular. So Paul finds himself in this hot water at times because he says the hard things. Let me close with this. Uh, this is a balancing act, right? Because I'll say it this way, all truth is God's truth. I'm going to read a quote from a guy named N.T. Wright because I don't think I can improve upon it. And so uh, I want you just to really listen in on this. He says this, the trouble with confrontations over ideas is that it's easy to make the mistake of thinking that every position, every philosophy, which isn't explicitly Christian, must be totally and utterly wrong. Paul knew better. He was not a dualist. All truth is God's truth, no matter where you find it. All truth can be twisted to serve the ends of human pride and arrogance, and that happens far too frequently but it can be straightened out again. And the way to do that is to take it captive, to make it change armbands and bring it to the right side. 
There's no insight, no vision of truth so noble and lofty that it cannot be perverted and made an instrument of human pride. Similarly, there is no small glimmer of light, no faint echo of reality so small or corrupt that it cannot be taken into the service of the world's creator and true Lord. What he's saying here is that we don't categorically reject something because it's not explicitly Christian. So we don't ban books, we don't picket movies, we don't because it's not explicitly Christian. Likewise, you would do well to take stock of things that have Jesus' name on it that actually don't represent the Jesus that we find in the Gospels. We don't explicitly say no to one and yes to the other because it doesn't have Jesus' name on it or it does. What Paul is saying is that you find if it's true, it's of God. Whether you find it in the church or outside of the church. Now, that's not to say that anything goes and everything goes and all roads lead to God. No, that's not what the scripture says. But what he's saying is we don't categorically reject something because it doesn't explicitly say it's Christian or it does explicitly say. And this is the hard work of theology. This is the hard work of being actually critically thinking Christians in the world who know how to discern between light and dark. The rabbi said that the beginning of the world began with God separating light and dark and now the work continues in you and I. And so we weigh. The word glory in Hebrew is kavod, and it means to weigh. If there's something that's of light, it's heavier. And we weigh it. And gang, I hate to tell you this, but it's not black and white all the time. That's a, that's a lie that religion sells you because it's easier to keep you in line. And it's not true. It's hard work. Sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't. But the work is to press in, to, to use these weapons that we have, the spirit of God in you, the word, Jesus, all of this, the spirit at work in the world, and we bring it into the light. So if I, if I could just close by saying this, I'll ask maybe, gang, if you guys want to take your spots, um, this is kind of a, a, a like theological idea, and I tried to figure out a way, how do we like land this so that, like, okay, so what, right? Now what do I do? And I, I think a couple of things come to mind for me, very briefly. One is, you bring something into the light. And so if this is in me, in my mind, or it's in our community, or it's in our world, the process by which we bring something into the light and we let the scriptures, we let Jesus, we let the Spirit of God at work in the world scrutinize the things, the systems, the powers, the thoughts, the patterns, the habits, and we let, it, we let God speak to them. And this is scary because it means you, you have to hold it with open hands. Your own heart, your own mind, our community, and what we're doing in the world. But you bring it into the light. And if you have the courage, you say, God, here I am. This is the, the word he, uh, in hineni in Hebrew. It's what Moses said at the bush. It's what Hannah said to, Sam, to God with Samuel. It's what Samuel said when he got woken with a dream. Hineni, here I am. Here am I. And so we bring it into the light and we say, here I am. God, do your work. We don't do this alone. One of the, one of the, the values of our culture is individualism. This country was built on it. And I just need to say that that actually stands in opposition to the gospel. You were not meant to be alone, Genesis 2 tells you. And so when we talk about this 
battle or this, this, this rigorous uh, uh, discipline of following Jesus and we want to subject ourselves to following this Jesus, it, it's not meant to be done alone. And so there are things that hide in darkness in you and in me because we are, we're alone on them. And we're scared to bring them out into the light because what would happen and what would that mean and what would someone think? And I guarantee you, whatever it is that's in your head right now that has that sinking feeling, there's somebody else in the room who has the same sinking feeling about the same thing. The lie is that you're alone on this, and you're not. You're not. We're not. I met with Steve Weens last week. Neither one of us want to be disqualified from the call that we feel like God has given on our lives, and so we, we're going to keep meeting, and it's all on the table. Micah, when you're stressed and when you're frustrated and you're alone, what, where do you go? What do you look at? How many drinks do you have? Those are the questions on the table. Because I don't want to be disqualified because of some dumb, idiotic decision I make in despair. I would encourage you, if there's not somebody like that in your life, to seek that out. Don't do it alone. And lastly, I would just say that it's a daily practice of recognizing our need for the Holy Spirit to be working in our hearts and to be moving us towards the light and towards Jesus and towards that which is good and life-giving. So maybe just in practice as we close today, I'll invite you to just take a few moments and I'll say a quick prayer and I'll just kind of leave you some space um, to ask that question of God, here I am in the light. Holy Spirit, what would you show me? And I want to do this, I want to invite you to do this personally, but I want to invite us as a community, as Awakened, to do this. Maybe there's something that God says on behalf of this community. I'd love to know what that is as one of the leaders here. So let me pray and invite you to do this with me. God, as we kind of round the corner on our gathering this morning, and we, we come to this place of having heard and sung and been with one another, read your word, open to your spirit. I pray, God, that you would, just in the next few moments of quiet, that you would give us the picture of just turning on a light switch in a room. And your spirit, your light, only makes known what is true. It's never about shame. It's never about degrading. But it only illuminates that which is true. And if it's life-giving, Give us an appetite for it, God. And if it's not, take it away by your spirit with other people walking with us. So maybe just in the next few moments, uh, if you would imagine, whatever that looks like for you, turning on a light switch, and what might God illuminate? May you know the power of God in the resurrected Jesus, which brings dead things to life. In the world, in us, in me, and in you. Grace and peace to you all. I love you. See you next week. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com 
backslash Awaken Community. Or oh, I've been off by Awaken Community. See you next time.